0: Alright, well if you would, this morning open up your Bibles with me. Let's look together at the book of Romans in chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Our text this morning is one verse. And it is a verse that you have heard me quote from this pulpit a hundred times. It is a verse that I cherish and that has been a great source of joy to Christians throughout the last 2,000 years. It's certainly one of those verses that I hope you have memorized and have hidden deep in your heart. It's Romans 8, verse 1. And it is a statement of truth. It is a declaration of glorious reality for every Christian. There is therefore now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If any of you happen to be using the King James Version, I should point out that um, your translation will use several more words. There is a a dependent clause in the King James Version that's not found in our modern versions. Uh, The King James Version says this There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And I want to be clear that that added clause in the King James Version is absolutely true. Who are those people who are in Christ Jesus? Who are those people for whom we can say there is no condemnation? It is those people who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. In fact, Paul says that very thing down at the end of verse 4. But there is a reason that the modern translations don't have that at the end of verse 1, and that is that the oldest and the most reliable biblical manuscripts that we have do not include that at the end of verse 1. The translators of the King James Version used the best manuscripts they had at the time when they put together that translation. Um, but it seems now very obvious that those words were added centuries after Paul wrote the book of Romans uh, to the end of that verse. And so, Now, here's how I want us to unpack this glorious verse. Romans 8, verse 1. I want to unpack it in four parts. First... I want us to look at the heart of the verse. No condemnation. What does Paul mean when he says no condemnation? And we will try and let that come to bear on our souls. Then second, I want us to look at the words, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because no condemnation is an awesome, heart-rejoicing reality. But it is only a reality for those who are in Christ Jesus What does that mean? Who are these people? How do we know if that's us? So we're going to look at that. Part three is going to focus on the word now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means there used to be a time when we were under condemnation. But something has happened. Something has occurred so that now we are no longer under condemnation. So what's that about, Paul? What, what is the now referring to? So we're going we're gonna to look at that. And then fourth and finally, we're going to look at the word, therefore. Uh, this word means that what Paul was saying in Romans 8, verse 1, is not just out of the blue. It's connected to everything he's been saying before. There is therefore, in light of what I've just said, there is therefore now no condemnation. And so we're going to ask, how does this verse fit with everything else that Paul has been saying to this point? Now that's the plan, and, that's, and it's going to be multiple messages. I want you to think of us as paleontologists, okay? Dinosaur scientists. Right? How, how does a paleontologist work? Well, a, a paleontologist discovers these fossilized bones in the ground, and the paleontologist is excited about the find. Uh, he or she knows that when the dig is completed, it's going to be incredible. But they are so careful as they dig the bones out. They, they don't want to mess anything up. They don't want to go wrong. They go carefully about their work. And over the next several sermons, we're going to be carefully going about the work of answering these questions from the Bible. What is Paul talking about? So that at the end, we can hold Romans 8 verse 1 before us and just marvel and say, what a glorious gift this verse is to the church of Christ and to our souls. So that's the plan. This morning, I just want us to look at the heart of the verse. No condemnation. We know what the word no means. No time spent on that. We know what the word no means. But condemnation. Kids, do you know what this word condemnation means? If your teacher was to give you a vocabulary test, and one of the words in the vocabulary test was condemnation, and you were to give the definition for this word, would you know what it means? Well, this word condemnation refers to a sentence handed down by a judge and the punishment that that sentence declares. To be condemned is to be declared guilty of a crime and set apart for punishment. It's a legal term. It refers to what happens in a court setting when the jury or the judge declares that a person is guilty and then issues a sentence. John Doe, you have been found guilty of murder in the first degree and you are therefore condemned to die by hanging. Maybe they would have done in centuries past, right? That is condemnation, a sentence handed down. Now, I, I don't often go into details about the Greek Meanings and the Greek words in our Bible, but this word is very unique. This word condemnation in verse 1. Why? Because it's rare. Paul is the only person to use this word, and he only uses it in the book of Romans and only a few times. It's the word katakrima. So I want everybody to say katakrima. Kata is the Greek word meaning against, and krima is the word from which we get our word crime or criminal. So, katakrima means against the criminal. Against the one who committed the crime. What is condemnation? It is that judgment that has been handed down. That punishment that has been declared and will be carried out against the criminal. To be under condemnation in the New Testament means that you have been found guilty and are therefore consigned to punishment. Now, What is this condemnation that Paul was talking about? This word means that there must be a judge, there must be a criminal, and there must be a punishment. So who is the judge, who is the criminal, and what is the punishment? Well, thankfully, church, if we had no other book but just the book of Romans, we would be able to answer each and every one of those questions. Who is the judge that has issued this condemnation? It is God who are the criminals who are being condemned. It is all humanity. How do we know that? Well, we can look at the only other place in all of the Bible where this word is used back in Romans 5. So very quickly, look back at Romans 5. You should just turn a page and it should be there. Romans five. And we're going to look at verses 16, 17, and 18. Look at these verses with me. Romans 5, beginning in verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, speaking of Adam. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Here, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for who? All men so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What is Paul talking about here? It really isn't too difficult. He is speaking of one trespass, one sin, one crime, committed by one man that brought condemnation on all people. The condemnation that Paul is speaking of here is that which is due to all of us because we are in Adam. It isn't just that we have sinned. It's that you and I, by nature, are sinners. Sin is bound up in our very nature. It is bound up in our hearts. We as human beings are part of a race of sinners. A race whose very head, Adam, knowingly, and presumptuously broke the law of God and brought upon every one of us God's curse and His righteous wrath. Remember the first chapter of Romans and our time that we spent there. Paul told us in Romans 1, I want to tell you about the Gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let me tell you about the gospel. Verse 18, here's where it begins. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need Jesus and a cross? Why do we need to be saved? What is it that we need to be saved from? Is it Satan? Now Satan is certainly a powerful foe. The Bible calls him the God of this world. Is it the power of sin? By nature, we're all slaves to sin. But neither of those is the main issue. What we need to be saved from most of all is the wrath of a holy God. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, going all the way to the middle of Romans 3, God is angry with us. He is rightly angry with us. When Paul wants us to understand why we need the Gospel, he doesn't begin by talking about the devil. And he doesn't begin by talking about sin's present power in our lives. When Paul wants to tell us why we need the gospel, the first place he goes is here. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God. Now, Mount Hermon, I don't have to tell you that there are few things more politically incorrect to say in our culture than to say that God is angry with someone. Even in most churches, you will seldom hear this kind of talk anymore. God is butterflies and rainbows. God is the Santa Claus in the sky who wishes everyone well and exists for this purpose to make us happy. But friends, if that's who God is, why do we need the Gospel? The Gospel is about salvation from a God who is rightly angry. In fact, if you cannot get your mind around an angry God, you have not yet come to terms with the God who truly exists. The God before whom one day you will stand. It is interesting to listen to those people who deny that God might be angry with man these people almost never give evidence for their position. They reject the idea of the wrath of God on no other grounds than this one. They don't like it. They can't imagine a God who would be angry with people. In our world, this is an absolute principle. A wrathful God cannot exist. Everything else is relative. You can believe what you want. I'll believe what I want. Right and wrong are determined by each of us for our own lives. There are no absolutes except for that absolute. There are no absolutes. And this one, you can't believe in a God who is angry. That kind of a God can't exist. If you believe in the God of the Bible, you will be completely out of step with this world. Was recently looking through a book by a popular author. In the name of this book. Here's the title: What Jesus Meant. That's a pretty important title, isn't it? I am going to tell you what Jesus really meant. This author claimed in his book, and not surprisingly, he claims that we've all misunderstood Jesus to this point. And this author claims he's going to set us straight and let us know what Jesus really meant. And the whole book is a denial of the most important truths of the Christian faith. In fact, the the message of the book basically boils down to, I'm okay, you're okay, and God is happy with everybody. And at the end of the book, the author then addresses the question, well then why the cross? What was the cross really about, if everybody's okay? And what he does is he takes on the biblical gospel and Here's what he says, speaking of Anselm. He says, Anselm argued that Jesus had to become a man in order to pay God a debt that man could not pay on his own. The offense of original and all subsequent sin was of infinite nature because the offended party, God, is infinite. Only an infinite spokesman for man to pay the debt with his life. Now, church, that's very much what I hope we believe. I mean, this, this isn't just Anselm, this is the teaching of Christ Himself. This is the teaching of the apostles. Jesus came to pay a debt in our place because we could not pay it apart from an eternity in hell. A penalty had to be paid if we were to be saved from an eternal hell because a God of infinite worth had been offended. This is the gospel taught right here in the book of Romans. But here's what the author of this book said. He completely dismissed this view of the cross. He said, but why did the payment include Jesus' death and such a horrible death? Was the creditor so exacting? Behind this conclusion lies the imagery of an angry God hard to appease but by the most terrible sacrifices. This is a view that some people call gruesome. Notice, he doesn't give evidence that that view is wrong except for this evidence it means God is angry. And we're supposed to assume this can't be true. A God of wrath who cannot be appeased by by the most terrible sacrifices, surely a God like that can't be the true God. And yet church... When we deny the biblical teaching about the true God, we lose the glory of what the gospel is really all about. We lose the cross. We lose the glory of God because we do not have a God who is ambivalent to sin. The God of that man is a God for whom sin just doesn't bother him that much. Injustice does not bother him that much. Cruelty, evil, wickedness doesn't bother him that much. And when we lose the gospel, we have to replace it with something else, like, well, not trust Jesus and He'll save you from the wrath of God. That's Romans. Suddenly we have to replace it with trust God and He'll make your life better. He'll make your marriage better. He'll Here's 10 tips on how to, you know, Do better at work. We lose the essence of the gospel. Church, here is the biblical gospel. Here is what the gospel is about no condemnation. That's the gospel. No condemnation. Romans 8.1 If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God's righteous anger towards your sin has been propitiated, appeased, so that you now have peace with God. You are no longer God's enemy. His wrath is no longer upon you. Because of Jesus Christ, you are adopted as a child, as a child of His love. For as great as is the wrath of God, just as great as is is the love of God. And Jesus takes us out of the realm of His wrath and moves us into the realm of His special, saving love. You see, even when God was angry with us, god loved us and he sent his son to satisfy his own justice for our sakes our god is bigger and much more complex than this world realizes you don't have to choose between a god of justice and a god of love the true god is both and the cross is where that all comes together the cross is where that is proven so God is the judge who issues the condemnation. All humanity is the criminals, the sinners who deserve the condemnation. But what is the nature of this condemnation? What does the punishment do us for our sins? Is it a slap on the wrist? Is it a mild punishment? Is it something small? Well, first we can say this. This condemnation is a present reality for every person who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to say that again. I want you to hear it. This condemnation that Paul talks about in Romans 8.1 is a present reality for every person who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. Rich people, poor people, famous people, obscure people, urban people, rural people, educated people, uneducated people. When it comes to this, there are no distinctions. None. Any person that has not found safety in Jesus Christ is under this condemnation. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 3. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Did you hear those words? Condemned already. In other words, it's not as if I'm simply saying, well, at the end of your life... You will face condemnation. No, Jesus says, if you are not a believer in Him, then this very moment you are already condemned. The sentence has already been declared. In the courts of heaven, the verdict has already been delivered. You have been found guilty of transgressing the law of a holy God. You are guilty in Adam as a part of his race. And you are guilty in and of yourself for trampling the laws of God. You yourself know that you have done things that are morally wrong and these past sins cry out against you in the courts of heaven. God has already pronounced the sentence. He's even issued it to you in the pages of the Bible again and again. And it is a terrible sentence. An eternity in a place called hell. That is the condemnation the Bible speaks of. And the wrath of God is coming upon you. If you are an unbeliever, then you are like a person who has already received the sentence of the death penalty, and you're just awaiting your execution. You are in that moment between the sentencing having been carried out, between the sentencing being given, and the sentencing being carried out. That's where you are, between those two. Waiting. Most people today don't even know the danger they're in. Deep down they know it. That's Romans 1, right? Deep down all people know that there is a holy God whom we have offended by our sins. But Romans 1 is also clear that people by nature suppress the truth. People do everything they can to assuage their consciences. To convince themselves this can't be true. There is no God of judgment that I will ever have to stand before. I won't believe it. I refuse to believe it. Sometimes they do this by convincing themselves there's no God at all. And more often than not, they just convince themselves that there is a God, but He would never do this. He could never be this angry. The God of the Bible demands our attention. And the God of the Bible speaks to us everywhere in its pages of His coming judgment upon sinners. Look in the book of Nahum, chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but just think about it. Nahum, chapter 2. The prophet Jonah had gone to the city of Nineveh and he had demanded that the people of the city of Nineveh repent and turn to the true God. And they did. A remarkable work of salvation, unlike anything this world has known, took place in the city of Nineveh as the whole city turned to the true God. But it wasn't long before that city turned back to its paganism, to its idolatry, to its immorality. In this time, there would be no mercy. God calls out to the city of Nineveh through the prophet Nahum and He mocks them. He says, The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. In other words, God is telling the people of Nineveh that they have trampled His honor for too long. He is coming against them. And He says, If you want to resist Me, well, now is your chance to prepare. Prepare. But how do you prepare to fight against God? What armor do you put on that He can't pierce? What weapon do you choose that can do any harm to God? Friends, before we give Eastern North Carolina the great news of the gospel of God's love, we must be clear about the bad news. God will only allow His name to be trampled for so long. He is coming against us. He is coming against every person who does not find refuge in Christ. He indeed, he is coming through the person of Jesus Christ, because there is coming a day where you're told in 1st Thessalonians when Jesus will come back and all of his angels will be with him. And what are they coming to do? To bring judgment on this earth. Matthew, was it 25? The Son of Man will come from heaven and He will gather the nations before Him and He will separate them as a shepherd separates sheep from goats and the sheep He will bring into eternal life but the goats He will cast away into hell. We call this the bad news. It's not really bad. God is good to do this. God is just to do this. Indeed, God would be evil if He did not do this. The glory of His name must be vindicated. He would cease to be God if He did not bring about justice to those who trample His honor. But for all those who have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good, they cannot imagine why it is good and right for a God to do this. They have not gotten a true sense of God's worth They do not see themselves in light of God's glory. They're still looking through man-centered lenses instead of God-centered lenses. And so when they hear this doctrine of hell and condemnation, it strikes them as foolish, unbelievable, incredible. I can't believe it. Imagine standing on the shores of Indonesia back in December of 2004. Remember that? You see the tsunami wave approaching. You see its size. And you see its power. And you know immediately to the core of your being that this wave is going to level everything around you and that hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. And that you're one of them. Because it doesn't matter how fast you run, this wave is going to get you. You have no chance of escape. That is the way Jesus and the apostles speak of the wrath of God. It is a wave that is coming. It will hit you the day you die or the day Jesus comes back, whichever comes first, and it will carry you to hell. And the only escape you have is in Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We're almost done. But second, let me say this. The punishment itself will be terrible. The punishment will be terrible. What can we say about the condemnation of Romans 8, 1? One, it's a present reality for every person that's outside of Christ. Two, it will be Terrible. When the wave hits and the wrath of God comes upon the unbeliever, the experience of God's wrath will be horrendous. And the Bible does not hide this. The Bible is not soft on this. Do you believe the Bible or not? That's the question. But if you say you believe the Bible, then you can't can't play games with it. It's clear. There's pictures of the judgment of God all over it and what it will be like. We we have a shadow of it in fire and brimstone falling upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. There's a picture of God's wrath in the book of Exodus when Pharaoh and the Egyptian armies are crossing the Red Sea after God's people and suddenly they look to the left and they look to the right and the waves come crashing down upon them, killing them all. In Isaiah, we have a picture of God trampling his enemies in anger, like a person trampling grapes underfoot in a wine press. And we're, talk, we're told about the blood that splatters all over his white robes. But perhaps what we should pay most attention to is the explicit teaching of the Bible about that place called hell. We're just going to begin this, we'll, we'll do more tonight. But I want to be clear that this place called hell really exists. You don't get to shape reality, folks. Reality is. Conform yourself and your thinking to reality. Hell exists. So how is hell described in the Bible? Well, in Matthew, hell is described as a place of outer darkness. And as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth let's let's end here go to Matthew 22 let me show you this Matthew 22 as you turn there let me as you turn to Matthew 22 let me point out this is only one of six places in Matthew's gospel where Jesus describes hell in terms of weeping and gnashing of teeth now on this occasion Matthew 22 it's at the end of a parable I just want you to see verse 13 just verse 13. Matthew twenty two thirteen, Jesus speaking, Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, we need to pay attention to those descriptions of hell. Jesus spoke them in order that we would tremble. Jesus spoke them so that they would drive us To him for mercy and salvation. He describes hell as outer darkness. Darkness. That's the noun. Darkness. Hell is a place of darkness. And I think this probably means actual darkness because light is an attribute of God. Our God is the father of lights. Light does not come ultimately from the sun. Day one, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Day four, God said, let there be a sun. It was light before there was a sun. Light is an attribute of God. Light is something that comes to us from God as His blessing in hell. Sinners will be separated from the blessings of God, which means it is a place devoid of light. It is utter darkness. Have you ever been in a place with all the lights completely out, pitch black darkness? Think about how disorienting it is. Think about how your eyes become useless to you. Think about living in that forever. And then remember that Jesus described hell as a place of outer Darkness, outer, the idea of separation, of being away from others. Hell is a place of complete loneliness. One of the blessings of God is the blessing of community. God Himself is community, three persons relating inside the Godhead, and His people are made a community. But in hell, this blessing is taken away. There's no fellowship in hell, there's no social interaction. In hell, there is pitch darkness and there is complete loneliness. We might think of the terrors of hell and say, as terrible as hell will be, at least I can endure it because I know other people will be with me. There will be no one else with you. It is isolated suffering. Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this weeping is a weeping of sorrow. Only twice is this word used outside the context of hell. One is when Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And the Ephesian elders and Paul have loved each other and they're never going to see him again in this life. And as he departs to head towards what they imagine is his death, they weep in grief for him. And the other place this word is used is right after Herod kills all of the boy sons of Bethlehem, two years old and under, and we're told about the extreme sorrow of the mothers in Bethlehem. This word is grief, psychological, emotional suffering. In this case, the people in hell are weeping because of the sins of their past life. You see, for the people in hell, their sins are always before them. They see how careless they were towards God, how self-absorbed they were, how foolish they are confronted every moment of every day by the way they chose to love the gifts of this world more than the giver. How they chose to live for a world that was passing away rather than for that which was eternal. How they indulged themselves in practices that harmed humanity and dishonored God and in outer darkness they will weep bitterly. Not says Pastor Justin. Says the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll stop with this. Jesus describes hell as a place of gnashing of teeth. Have you ever felt pain so terrible that your jaw tightened and you had to grit your teeth in order to bear it? That's what those words mean. It's a picture of intolerable pain. A pain that you wish with all your soul would just end. Just end. And it never ends. Friends, this is just the beginning. We'll see more tonight. But if there is anyone here who has not found refuge in Jesus Christ, it is your destiny I've been describing. This is where you are going. This is where you will go if you do not repent. Repent. I give you a solemn warning. I give you a sober appeal. Turn to the Lord while He may be found. Seize this moment to have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Throw yourself on Christ's mercy without delay. And dear Christian, know that we deserve this punishment and hear the glory of the words. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you feel it, church? Do you know how blessed you are that in a world where billions walk in darkness and have no idea, you are one who has been given eyes to see and ears to hear, and your God says to you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Are you going to complain about the weather?